Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent GuyTech Summit. The guests on that panel were Skip Bailey, the Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Census Bureau in the Commerce Department, Gondeep Alawalia, the Chief Information Officer at the Department of Labor, Michael Anthony, the Chief Information Officer at the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board, James Fitch, the Federal Civilian Business Manager for Red Hat, and Guy Cavallo, the Chief Information Officer for the Office of Personnel Management. First, we hear from Census Bureau's Deputy CIO, Skip Bailey. Alan Kay said that uh, context is worth 80 IQ points, and so I want to give you a context of what the Census Bureau is going through that really is the driver, since, like all of you, we don't do IT for IT. We do IT to support the mission of the Census Bureau. The Census Bureau's mission is essentially to become the preeminent uh, provider of quality data about the people and the economy of the United States. And we're, we do over 130 surveys and censuses. Most people think about one of the, one of the things we do. We do over 130. Uh, you, you'll see little things like economic indicators and things that show up on a more regular basis that we're involved in collecting data for. The problem that the Census Bureau is facing today is twofold. Number one, the country, maybe the world, has become survey weary. And you all know, you experience it yourselves, we're bombarded with doing surveys. Every time you call to find out about an insurance policy or call Best Buy or whatever, the first thing they want to do is, uh, can you stay on the line and do a survey at the end of the thing? And you get them in the email. You get them, people calling you. And so the response rates are declining rapidly. So it's not just for us. It's anybody that's in the business. So we have a problem there. The second problem is that there are a lot of people out there that know a lot about the people in the economy of the United States. Like, how much does Google know about you? And you start to think about where all this knowledge is and how we get to it. And so we're under tremendous transformation to become, to maintain our relevancy in that changing environment. So the transformation we're going through uh, from a technology standpoint is to support that transformation. And that transformation includes making things a lot more aligned and together. Uh, Those 130 surveys and censuses currently and in the past They've been relatively independent. People have their own siloed data. They do their own thing. They're trying to achieve the same mission, but we're doing it uh, 130 times instead of one time. And so we're building a, we're we're transforming the way we do data, the way we collect data. That means we're going to look, we're going to use technologies like Data Lake, like uh, certainly the cloud and other technologies to help improve that mission and move us in a direction that makes it so that we can continue to be relevant and be the leader in, the, in that space within the United States. One quick follow-up. When you talk about using different technologies to do that, one example may come to mind of recently, hey, we've initiated something or, hey, this is fairly new that has started to make a difference. You're starting to see some mission effectiveness or changes. Probably one of the big ones right now is we're in the middle of building an enterprise data lake. And as I mentioned, we have siloed data all over the place, this will bring things together so that we can, uh, there's still data that's restricted and not everybody can use, but 
But at the same time, the data that is available, we can make it much more effective by looking across things instead of as individual data. And so that data lake, which will actually reside in the cloud, is one of the big efforts that we've under under recently. All right. Hopefully that will start to stimulate some questions from the audience. Gundeep Labor, tell us something. So I'll, I'll, I'll start off by talking a little bit about what labor does. Uh, I know you, that was not your instructions there. They can look it up. I hear now. <laughs> Uh, they have no, the Google. so I think I think that is a part of the problem, right? Uh, so labor department not only puts out all these statistical uh, uh, information about uh, jobless claims, etc. We are the workman compensation claims for two and a half million uh, uh, employ- uh, employees around the around the country. We protect your four hundred one k's on the other side. We are in every part of the country doing safety and health inspections. Uh, we are also uh, helping veterans do transition assistance when they come back. It's not VA, it's actually done through us. So that kind of a sprawl is also a problem to put a IT program that can cater to a very um, uh, interacting with the HIPAA-protected PII information in workman compensation claims, uh, but also put a hand- handheld device with the inspection history when an OSHA investigator shows up in your location. So we are about in 650 locations across the country, right? So I will talk about two things that are new uh, and have been uh, uh, top of mind for us. One is uh, 650 locations across the country. In Francis Perkins building on 200 Constitution Avenue, I don't know if there are going to be 30 people in the building or 5,500 people in the building on any given day. They could be on the road. They could be working from home, or they could show up at the building. I have the same amount of money to maintain that wide area network and my telecommunications capabilities across the country. 650 locations, right? Don't have extra money, but now I don't know whether to invest in VPNs or should I be investing in in the internet capacity at FPB or should I be pushing? Well, the answer is all of the above, unfortunately, so we are investing heavily and in bringing innovation as to how to modernize our highways so that we can allow our uh, labor employees to be anywhere and be productive and deliver that mission that I talked about in the beginning. So that's a little bit of an infrastructure play on one side. The other side is, uh, is about mission delivery, is about revolutionizing the customer experience uh, for employers, for end users who interact and rely on uh, labor services, which means faster digitization on our mission applications, moving them to the cloud, et cetera. The one example I will say, which actually I'm also thankful to the TMF board recently, we are revolutionizing the PERM program in the Office of Foreign Labor Certificate. Not many people or many people may not know that we are the first stop for every immigrant or temp worker coming into this country. It is not USCIS or DHS. It is actually the Department of Labor. And depending on the priority date we issue you, your immigration journey into the country could be anywhere between three years to maybe 10. That's the kind of difference it makes. So that uh, latest TMF uh, award actually digitizes a perm process for which every immigrant has to take uh, to get their green cards uh, uh, through Department of Labor. I still have my 16-page labor certificate printed on a currency-like paper sitting with me at home. I hope that uh, in a year's time uh, that will not be the case, and it will be a digital. And all of these go to 
USCIS, which is the next stop in the process, right? So that is another um, feature in the government. We take a business process and divide it up and give it to labor. Half of it goes to CBP, half of it goes to USCIS. So once we have digitized this process, that immigrant journey will be more digitized and we will pass the information along to DSS and others. So that's the kind of reform that we want to bring to each and every business process at labor, and we're trying to accelerate that as quickly as possible. Gunji, one quick follow-up. Um, I'm glad you brought up the Technology Modernization Fund. Labor, I think, two awards or three? Three, and the fourth's in the hopper. The fourth is in the hopper. Well, of course, I'd want to know what that fourth is, but I'll ask about the other three. One of the big challenges I think people face is, do I or don't I apply? How do I get through the process? Maybe give the one thing that you would say, one recommendation you would say, or one one impact that the TMF has had on, for instance, the prime process, and, and how, how did you get that one through the, the wickets? So often my fellow CIOs are in this conundrum. We go, have to go to the program and say, I will levy a tax on you to give you a, a value mission delivery application. Well, for the TMF board, you, you bring in net new dollars into the mix. Now, these are mostly loans, but it is six years to pay back that loan, right? So if you have a $20 million reform that you've been waiting for forever, writing budget issue papers and Congress has not given you anything, well, come, let's, let's go to the TMF board. Initially, to be honest with you, Jason, we thought like Department of Labor, we are as unsexy as they come. Will we be able to compete with the others? And guess what? We, are, we, are, we have three awards at this point in time, and hopefully that fourth one will come through as well. So please... Uh, I think it is an important tool that you should bring into the ecosystem because it's, it's like a loan. Now, few of the new ones, and this fourth one in the hopper we have, uh, the TMF board is also allowing for a grant kind of a construct if there is not enough savings that emerge out of it. For example, our labor certificate process, I will stop importing this currency paper from Northern Africa. <laughs> I will stop doing printing in my Atlanta and Chicago offices. So I'll have offsets to pay the TMF board back, and then the program can keep that offset after that loan is repaid. So that's the kind of construct uh, as well. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent Guy Tech Summit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent GuyTech Summit. The guests on that panel were Skip Bailey, the Deputy CIO of the Census Bureau, Gundeep Alawalia, the CIO of the Department of Labor, Michael Anthony, the CIO at the NTSB, James Fitch, the Federal Civilian Business Manager at Red Hat, and Guy Cavallo, the CIO at the Office of Personnel Management. For this segment, we first hear from Michael Anthony, the CIO of the NTSB. So one disclaimer, uh, NTSB, we are not part of transportation. We are an independent federal agency. So I thought about talking about our zero trust journey, identity, starting to exploit the, the cloud environment. But you all have heard a lot about that, and you probably don't want to hear anything else. And I committed to myself, I won't talk about uh, a, a subject with the acronym uh, or the initials AI. <laughs> I guess what that is. That's for later. Later. So the two topics I want to talk about, things we're focusing on but also struggling with, uh, one is human capital. Now, I've been through um, short-term and long-term government shutdowns. I've seen increases in budgets. Um, by the way, it takes resources to spend money and um, budget uh, cutbacks. 
I even went through a base realignment and closure at BRAC with DOD. And Carrie and I came from the same community. The one uh, thing I've noticed over the last few years is though we've had so much uncertainty and doubt and change, change in how we interact, how we engage, how we onboard, how we offload individuals, how we transfer knowledge, and I'm not 100% sure we've really figured out what right looks like. I actually thought we were doing pretty well, and then OMB issued a memo, which maybe you were rethinking some things. So, so given that, I'm you know, really interested maybe in hearing from my peers and, and you, and how can we optimize for the future? Because uh, I really, you know, I'm not one to look back. I think looking forward is the way to go, but how do we optimize it? I'm not sure we, anyone has really figured that out yet. So I'm interested in your thoughts. The second topic related to a little bit of what you were just discussing, um, really making our information more readily available, more intuitive, more easily accessible for our internal and external stakeholders and customers. What I'm really talking about is, is really transforming our customer experience. And quite frankly, that's completely related to data and accessibility and really all the mandates that are out there. It's just really getting uh, uh, your arms around it. Um, and quite frankly, uh, we've been thinking a lot about this internally. And uh, I'm not at liberty to share anything yet, but in the next couple of weeks, there's going to be a press release that will be coming out, and it really will outline how our agency is really going to significantly improve um, our customers' experience. So I'm excited for that. So I'm, I'm going to stop here and um, take any questions. But let's talk about human capital. Is, are you looking at this from an IT perspective and a people perspective, or is this really transformation around just the people side, how you hire, how you retain, how you recruit, which is a, a common, I think, refrain for everyone in the room? It's or both. both. It's all of the above. It's both sides of the coin. You know, internally, how do we operate as a technology office, you know, geographically dispersed? But also, how do we enable uh, all of our staff members wherever they are? You know, we really move towards location agnostic, ensuring everything is available. But, um, you know, you have what, 650 offices you need to, you know, ensure there are resources for while we're much smaller. Um, at the end of the day, they're the same problem sets. And, and really, it's all about um, ease. Like, for instance, we have... Uh, we have a in, kind of informal policy where uh, on day one, when a new employee either arrives or onboards virtually, they receive their equipment, their laptop, their devices. And, and I like to informally ask people how that was. And most people say, I- I've never had this before. It usually takes two weeks to six months to get a, a device. So we've really mo- moved towards that kind of white glove service. Everybody feels that way anyways. But I think the other things you're going after, uh, you described, are kind of going to be tougher for us. And again, I'm interested in your thoughts uh, out there because I suspect there's some nuggets out there that I can take back. Jim, take it up. I am the non-CIO on the panel. Um, I'm at Red Hat, and I manage a good bit of the federal civilian business unit at Red Hat. And we've become a very good partner with many people on this panel and many people in the audience who are our customers. So I thought I would give you a little bit of an industry perspective on what we're seeing So actually, two of the people on the panel I've had the opportunity to meet with in the past few months, and they wanted to follow up on one specific topic. Uh, Who wants to guess what that is? Software. Zero trust. (laughs) So um, that's becoming more and more important than ever before. So it's important that vendors out there like us are providing a stable, secure platform uh, for customers to run their mission-critical applications and missions more than ever before. 
Instead of doing these one-off technologies, what I'm seeing in CIO's office is trying to come up with standardization across different platforms, across a DevOps Kubernetes platform, which we offer automation solutions to address some of the shrinking population of workers in the workforce. Additionally, you know, you're all aware of, you know, the growth of cloud computing right now. The approach we take is a very hybrid model to that of supporting private and public clouds, whether you want a commercial or gov cloud, as well as dealing with what is best to move, move to the cloud or keep on premise. So um, that's one of the areas which, you know, I know CIOs are looking at and kind of figuring their way around right now. And the challenge in a lot of these areas is what becomes the budgets. Um, because in the future, uh, as you move to more of a cloud computing architecture, you know, how is how are those budgets going to match with what you need to achieve and accomplish? Another thing that's been kind of nice, too, is, you know, after dealing with COVID as long as we had, look, we're here in person. We're together, you know, industry people, government customers, and everybody else. So, Guy, tell us a little bit. So, tell us something we don't know. New things that I haven't talked about at any conference yet. OPM has been doing a lot to get all of our strategies in place. So, in the last fiscal year, we released the strategic plan for the agency. While that was being developed, I also was working with our new chief data officer to develop our data strategy, and at the same time, working to write a new IT strategic plan. If you go looking for the OPM IT strategic plan, the one that was on the website was written in 2014. Uh, I replaced it with an under construction sign as we were waiting to get our new strategic plan out for FY23 to 26. Uh, if you find the old plan from 2014, I'm not doing it, just so you know. <laughs> so uh, I'm very excited that we're in the final stages of 508 compliance before you'll see our new strategic plan up on the website. So for the people, for the vendor community that wants to know, you know, where's my best fit in OPM, you have the agency strategy, you have our data strategy, and very soon you'll have our IT strategy. And those of you that know me, surprise to surprise, it says go to the cloud. Uh, that's, that's what we're doing. A couple other things. We talked about TMF uh, money. Uh, if you do go to the OPM website, one of the things that I've had fun with is we did get an award to rebuildopm.gov, which I would vote as one of the worst websites in federal government. And any of you that go there and try to find anything, I think you'll agree with me. But as we're, and guess what, it's an on-premise environment that's going to go to where? The cloud. Um, meanwhile, while we're working with the TMF board, getting our money, getting our processes in place, we're still trying to improve the site that people go to every day. And for us, a new technology that for OPM we released recently was a chatbot is now available on opm.gov to answer retirement questions. Uh, Capitol Hill is very interested in knowing what OPM is doing to improve a retiree or a soon-to-be retired federal employee's experience. Um, I need you to go use that chatbot because we are doing the right thing. We are looking at what questions are being asked to the chatbot that we don't have an answer. And you can help us prioritize those answers. We, uh, we are in about 50 questions and answers today. We think we have to get up to about 800 to 1,000 to really be effective. Uh, but 
the funny thing is that I got called by OMB saying, hey, you haven't spent your TMF money yet, but you've already modernized OPM.gov. And we're like, no, we just, we just added a chatbot to support you know, today's users. You're also gonna see our new logo. OPM didn't have a logo for 50 plus years. We just now, for the first time, have a logo. Uh, we had the OPM seal that looks like all agency seals that you need a microscope to be able to read any of the lettering on it, and it just looks like a blurry badge that somebody stepped on. Uh, so we have a new logo, but that, again, when you go to opm.gov right now, it is not the rebuilt website. We're gonna use uh, performas to do that. Like, we're gonna, we know we have four key cases. One is I'm a federal employee and I need something. I either need to change my health plan, I need to add a new family member, uh, I need to think about retirement. So there'll be a path for that. Then we have citizens that go, hey, I wanna go work for the federal government. What, what are the benefits, what, what do I need to know? So there'll be a path for the citizens to go. And then since OPM writes all the, uh, all the government HR policies, we have all of the program offices, the HR offices and the agencies wanna know what's the latest going on with, uh, with OPM policies. So there'll be a persona for that. So take a look at it now. I know when I hire a new employee, I have to give them like eight links of here's where you go to get the health plan. Here's where you go to find out how much sleep you get. Here's where you go to get uh, the disability plans. Here's where you get vacation plans. Uh, again, we will be fixing that in the rebuild. The last thing I wanted to highlight is we're very strong supporters of the hybrid world of work. I can tell you with my team, I am now not just hiring in Washington, D.C. or Macon, Georgia or Boyers, Pennsylvania. And if you haven't been to either of those places, you'll see that it's not a great place to try to attract somebody to go to. Uh, I'm hiring across the country, but that means I have staff now that work on the West Coast. So one of the things we did last year is I awarded a 24 by seven help desk. We used to be a nine to five help desk on the East Coast. Well, my staff and other uh, OPM employees that work on the West Coast wouldn't get help desk support after 2 p.m. in the afternoon. And then those of us that are hybrid workers, you know that instead of whatever time you spend commuting, you work that much longer each day. So we're finding our employees, while they're working at home, are putting in 9, 10, 11 hour days. And so if they get stuck, or at 2 a.m. they wake up and they need help, they now can call my help desk and get an answer. So those are a couple things I hadn't talked about, Jason. All right. So Guy, two quick ones. You mentioned, I thought you said four use cases for the website, federal employee path to healthcare and stuff like that, citizen who want to work for the Fed, HR policy. Did I miss a fourth or did fourth I count? Fourth one, uh, I, I didn't count, okay. right? Fourth one is retirees. Retire, okay. Yeah, I'm a retiree, I need to do something. All right. And then that's good follow-up because the chatbot piece, that seems like an overwhelming chatbot because like we get at Federal News Network questions about retirees all the time, mm -hmm. and they're very specific to a very specific person, not the how do I file my papers. It's I worked for this agency for 23 years. I worked for that agency right. for 17 years. Why isn't my paperwork? I've been waiting. Just quickly, and that can open the door to, to further questions, but quickly tell us a little bit about how you developed that chatbot in the, among those first 50 questions. I imagine it's data-driven like Anything right. Else? Yeah, we started off data driven, and you know we've we've talked a lot with the Veterans Administration, and their chatbot, they're estimating, has taken about four percent of the calls off of their call center. Anything I can do to remove calls from the call center, which is our 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 
area that we need to improve the most at, at, uh, at OPM uh, is worth it. So we're, we're trying to get those basics of, uh, you know, I, I don't even know who to call. It's funny, we get a lot of questions like that. And then anybody who has their phone number published in OPM gets retirement calls if they can find you. Uh, what are the forms I need to file? file? A lot of people misunderstand that OPM only can process a retiree's package after their home agency collects all the data and gets it to us, and then we can work with it. Uh, the person that's retiring thinks as soon as they tell their HR office, now it's in OPM's hands. Uh, what we're finding, Jason, we have that long lag where we're being blamed, uh, I mean, and, and there are things we can be blamed for, but we're being blamed when we haven't even gotten the package yet. So we're hoping that we'll help answer those type of questions and point them the right way. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent Guy Tech Summit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent Guy Tech Summit. The guests on that panel were Skip Bailey, the Deputy CIO of the Census Bureau, Gundeep Alawalia, the CIO of the Department of Labor, Michael Anthony, the CIO at the NTSB, James Fitch, the Federal Civilian Business Manager at Red Hat, and Guy Cavallo, the CIO at the Office of Personnel Management. For this segment, the panelists take audience questions. All right, I'm Ron Schmelzer from Forbes and GovFuture, and my question, of course, has to be about AI, natural language processing. I know it's the next panel. But especially some of the use cases I heard about, the chatbots, Census Bureau, which is a lot of NLP data, where are you thinking in terms of where you're going, especially with AI-generated content and that sort of stuff? Maybe have you put some boundaries around what you are not going to do? Just things like that. I, I could maybe start with that. There's two levels in which AI and machine learning are two areas where we probably are focused. One is in, uh, in how we handle the analysis of data that we collect. And there's a lot of uh, interesting work that's being done on doing that with some machine learning models that help to crunch through these massive data sets. The other side of it is actually for like chat programs because one of, you know, because they're essentially crawlers and they get their data by crawling, the attribution of the correct or the best source is not always included. And so it's actually become incumbent on us to become the most obvious choice for the crawlers. And so you kind of have to play that game so that your data is the one when someone asks a question, because we see stuff come up and we've actually done studies where uh, there's data that's really our data and it's being reported incorrectly by a third party and that's how the chat program gets information. And so we're really starting to take that change and that challenge to become preeminent in, so that the crawlers are coming to the original source first or best or easiest. You know, you have to be the downhill approach. So it's probably on both of those sides that we're uh, kind of deep into it right now. 
We have deployed uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning in various processes. And I'll give you one example where we've used it very successfully is to autocode OSHA's injuries. So when injuries are reported, right, so somebody says, I have a headache, somebody says, my head throbs, etc. These have to be coded in order to understand what is happening from an injury perspective. 97% of these uh, are now autocoded using uh, machine learning, and 3 to 4% have to be flagged um, for humans to intervene. So necessarily, we have tried to use these technologies to push humans from low-value work to high-value work, right? Now, the other side of this is we have had programs where things have gone horribly wrong, where there is a bias, and we trained the AI on a biased data set, right? So just because AI is good, it, it was also good at exasperating that bias, right? So um, we are also investing in responsible AI frameworks and uh, uh, Krista Kennard and my uh, emerging tech uh, uh, branches is uh, collaborating with Stanford University, et cetera, to build frameworks so that it's not a once and done, right? I mean, we, we often are susceptible to, in IT, is the, the once and done mentality, right? Uh, just give me this new app and I don't want to see you again for a few years. And that has to change uh, in many ways. Anyone else want to jump in? Otherwise, I have another question. I was, I was going to add one quick one that we're just launching a pilot on that, that I think every agency is going to want us to be successful in. Federal employee position descriptions. <laughs> Show me anybody, <laughs> that, anybody that wants to rewrite from you know, the 1980s a position description to today. We're going to experiment with AI on coming up with good uh, position descriptions because uh, the human way of doing it across the federal government is not succeeding. My name is Eric Florence. I'm with Vericode. Where does the um, FedRAMP fall into that in your thinking, whether it's high or, or, or moderate? If you can provide some insight, that would be great. They're all looking at Guy for some reason. <laughs> all right. I love the FedRAMP program. We rate, <laughs> we rate it very highly and encourage the vendor community to work with it. It just makes federal agencies' implementation and getting through all of our processes so much easier. I think, I think GSA over time has done a really good job streamlining and making it easier to qualify. But, yeah, it's something that we heavily factor in on our decisions. Yeah, I would add, as a small agency, we almost have a FedRAMP first <laughs> posture, although we have sponsored, actually, um, some agencies. It just There's so much overhead associated with that. Uh, so I'd say FedRAMP first. It's an absolute necessary piece of work. You know, we have to look at FedRAMP and leverage that. We couldn't possibly get done what we need to without it. I think it's essential. So I'll offer a flip side for a, for a moment here. I think FedRAMP is important. We look at it. Absolutely, it, it helps us get to the right results. But I also feel in some areas it becomes a barrier for innovative vendors to come into the federal workspace. We already have a lot of barriers for vendors to do business with the government. So I sometimes worry that overemphasis on FedRAMP alone creates yet another barrier for people who are not FedRAMPed with their capabilities and are actually bringing innovation to the government. And from the industry perspective, I'll echo that, Gundeep, because the, the challenge of, of going would. through the processes... <laughs> can be very arduous so yeah I didn't I, I, I would certainly agree it could get a lot better and a lot easier for people to 
But the, but the general concept of it is yeah. very strong, right. and we've just got to work to make sure that, and it is easier than it used to be, but it needs to be a lot easier. I agree. We have a question. Speaking of FedRAMP, tell them who you are. So uh, Dominic Sale, I am uh, with REI Systems. My question is about customer experience. We have talked a lot. I've heard many mentions of customer in the abstract, but no discussion yet really about all the policy objectives and what the president has made, if not the top, one of the top objectives of his administration. Can anyone talk about what your thoughts are about the CX um, policies and where you think you are and what we in the vendor community can do to help make it a reality? I would say it's uh, long overdue. <laughs> Some agencies, I think, are, are being pushed that way. Other agencies are further along in their journey. I, I can just say internally we've taken it to heart. And uh, really it's about understanding who your different customers are in the various communities. And I, I kind of glossed over this, but you know, our customers are everybody from um, uh, victims of tragedies and their family members to other federal agencies that we share information with to other federal agencies that we... Um, uh, make safety recommendations to or, or different industries like the aviation industry. But at the end of the day is understanding who they are and then, and then um, listening, engaging, understanding what they need, and then meeting them there. And that's why I go back to data because it's pretty much everyone wants uh, access to data, and that's one of the internal challenges that we're trying to mature. And a guy mentioned the data strategy. You know, we've recently launched uh, ours, and it's really just following that roadmap. But, uh, I'm sure there's some other points of view, and you might have an ulterior one, uh, alternative one, deep So, I don't think I have an alternative one, but uh, we talk about customer. We've been talking about customer experience for years, even before the executive order, right? So we always try to say, "Hey, who is this for, and how are we going to make their lives better?" So I'll give you a couple of examples. And I, uh, so one, I, I talked about the labor certificate process, right? How the employers were waiting while we were printing these 16-page uh, labor certificates on currency-like paper and sending them, okay? All of them land at DHS. There is no need for us to print these out. Now you will get it as a boarding pass. I call that customer experience, right? Every claimant in our Office of Workman Compensation claims had to wet sign their claim before they got paid off, Okay. We stopped that practice in one of our programs in energy uh, workman compensation claims, and now we will replicate that across the other, where we can, they can digitally sign these. Customer experience, right? Another place where I, I am really proud uh, uh, to, to uh, we all had a lot of unemployment during the pandemic. Uh, that's a federal-state partnership. Uh, I'm glad to say that we have now tied up with the United States Postal Service, to provide ID uh, uh, verification services in 10 locations in Arkansas, and we are rapidly expanding it uh, across the country, right? What does that do? I am this guy who does, who, who's lost his job, needs to look for a job, but now has to do pro- prove their identity in order to get their unemployment check while doing it, right? 50 miles, 100 miles to the st- nearest state workforce agency, guess what? You can go to your, the United States Postal Service now within five miles of your house, and they will do the ID proofing. By the way, they deliver mail six times a, 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 a week to your place, right? That is customer experience. To I mean, this guy is exasperated, doesn't have a cell phone, doesn't have internet connections, is in the middle of the country. That's how we are looking at changing how we deliver services to the customers. But we shouldn't stop there. We should look at our employees too. 
because they are, they are in remote areas as well. And until we are able to give these tools and, and IT, and it, the non-digital pathways are equally important as the digital pathways, right? So this USPS is an IT play. We are connecting between the state of Arkansas's uh, UI system and the ID verification between uh, uh, the, the local post office there. It's an IT play for us, but it's a non-digital off-ramp to a person who may not even know what a cell phone looks like. Yeah, user experience is near and dear to my heart. About 100 years ago, I got my uh, PhD in user interface design and spent about the first third of my career designing user interfaces. So that's always at the, always at the back of my mind. And in the Census Bureau, we're focused in that area primarily in in enabling people to take advantage of the data that we have. And there, we get constant feedback because a large part of the data is being used by researchers and other people, and they're more than happy to give feedback uh, to us. And, and so we, we're in a constant loop of receiving that feedback, redesigning the way that we uh, make data available to people. And so it's, a, it's just this constant circle. And I think the key for government in general, government can view itself as a monopoly and then not put much, uh, you know, much in emphasis on on customer experience. If you're a monopoly, you just have to come to me too bad to learn how I do it, you know. Um, but I think we're realizing more and more we're no longer monopolies and we have to compete for the attention of people and the way you do that really is through their experience and improving that experience. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent Guy Tech Summit. I'm Jason Miller and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent Guy Tech Summit. The guests on that panel were Skip Bailey, the Deputy CIO of the Census Bureau, Gundeep Alawalia, the CIO of the Department of Labor, Michael Anthony, the CIO at the NTSB, James Fitch, the Federal Civilian Business Manager at Red Hat, and Guy Cavallo, the CIO at the Office of Personnel Management. For this final segment, the panelists continue to take audience questions. Hi, my name is Julie Few, and I'm with Iron Mountain. I wanted to ask, well, government solutions, let me add that piece too. I wanted to ask, is there a thought at the sea level to ever marry IT modernization with the importance of records management. You have, you have the ability to modernize. We talk about customer experience. We talk about the importance of data. But where is that data? Legacy records, digital records, how are you getting that information and providing that information to your internal custom, customers who are your employees, right? And then your external customers who you want to have that customer experience with. It's, it's, it's a thought process that I'm wanting to know really more around the C-level, CIO, if you're looking more at understanding the importance of records management with modernization. And, and I'll put a finer point on it because the answer is going to be yes, they are, because they're not going to say publicly they're not. How are you? And the budget. Let's, let's talk how. And, and everyone can, let's everyone do like the, this is the big roundup because then Guy has something for everyone. 
So uh, about 30 seconds or less each. Skip, you want to sit your... Just quickly, we, we're obligated by law to, uh, to manage Title 13, Title 26, and we can actually go to jail if we don't do a good job managing records. And we have to protect them. A good example is the census data we have to hold for 72 years. We can't allow anybody access. And then at 72 years, we release it. Like last summer, we released the 1950 census. So uh, we're very engaged in records management because uh, we have to. or we'll, we'll get in big trouble. So. So I think most uh, uh, departments and, and, and technology shops do uh, uh, have a hard time around record, records management, uh, accessibility, uh, privacy management. These are all f- things that are treated like the icing on the cake. If we have the time, we'll do it. Otherwise, it's not baked into the cake, right? So I think that culture has to change in, in, in many ways. And I, particularly from records management perspective, I think it has to be baked into your case management system. So if OSHA is doing an enforcement case, the expectation that then we will ask these investigators to go and do records management and yet another tool is just never going to happen. We human beings are too lazy for that. So we have to just bake it into the uh, IT modernization pathway, and automatically, once you close the, the, the case, it automatically, record management schedule kicks in, whether it's 72 years or perpetual or whatever it is. Mike? I would say we're attempting to balance uh, our requirements to transition legacy records to the National Archives um, with keeping the data local, local so our investigators can do their work and uh, open to ideas on how you balance that um, and meet all of our customers' needs. Yeah, just from an industry perspective, the amount of information out there is unbelievable. And just getting a feel and being able to accurately manage all those records from a government perspective, it becomes more and more of a challenge as more and more information is out there uh, for managing Okay. Yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, everything that we're looking at doing with our records is, is modernizing them, but keeping them in the cloud long term and getting them out of paper boxes uh, where they are now. In Boyers, Pennsylvania. Huh? What's that? I said, otherwise we'll be cellmates. Yes, we yeah. resellmates. And, and, and get them out of the caves of Boyers, right? The court, yes. If you, right. if you look at the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the very last scene of, <laughs> of rolling the Ark of the Covenant down the hallway with all the stacks, that's where all the federal employee retirement records look like they are today. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent GuyTech Summit. The guests on that panel were Skip Bailey, the deputy CIO at the Census Bureau, Gondeep Alawalia, the CIO of the Department of Labor, Michael Anthony, the CIO at the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board, James Fitch, the Federal Civilian Business Manager at Red Hat, and Guy Cavallo, the CIO at the Office of Personnel Management. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 